You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. God's Word, Psalm 116, starting in verse 12. What shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. God, we stand before you today, offering you our lives, our worship, who we are, And we invite you to be God, because we know we're not. Would you today open up your word, help us to see your story at work through the centuries, the millennia, and in our life today. This is what we ask in Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome to first, a group of people that are just so much like followers of Jesus. I mean, that's all we know how to do. That's our primary goal. And so we welcome you. If you've gathered here, uh, here in our space for the very first time, we want you to know that you're especially welcome to join us as we kind of stumble our way through following Jesus. But we invite you on this journey as well. So last night, our our family converged. Uh, Nathan came in from college Donna and Lizzie and I came in from her final uh, college visit. And so we, Nathan, and, Nathan was driving and we were in plane. And uh, you pay attention to people on planes. I don't know if you do that, but there was a woman across the aisle from me. She's older than me. She was reading on her, her tablet device a book, normal looking woman. And then suddenly this started happening. And I, 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 was, I didn't know how to respond. I mean, what do you do? Am I, am I getting a story here for the sermon the next day that I've saved this woman? I'm, I'm looking at her eyes and they're closed and she's just... And I'm watching, and I'm, do I need to intervene? Is she having a seizure? Is this a medical emergency? And then she stops and looks at her watch. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess she's all right. And then this happens. I'm like, what? And then she looks at her watch again, and I realize, oh, okay, she's getting her steps in. (laughs) On the plane, you know, restricted, but still getting her steps in. Now, is that the point of a fitness watch? No, it misses it. And I didn't get to be the hero. Different story. Whenever someone gives you a gift, whenever someone responds to you in a way that's different from what you expect? How do you respond? I'm talking about those gifts that come to you where you're not planning on it, it's not your birthday, it's not a holiday, and someone just honors you with a gift. Or maybe you've done something to really harm someone and they don't react in quite the way that you anticipate. I mean, I don't know about you, if you can imagine those times in your life when that's happened, can you? Can you think about those scenes? Do you react kind of with some shame or some guilt 
Or maybe a bit of embarrassment, like I didn't get you anything or I didn't treat you that way. What goes on inside of you? Do you just have this overwhelming sense of humility? Or do you kind of just want to ignore it? Like just pay attention. Okay, yeah, that's great. And just move on past this kind of unsettling experience. Another story. When I think about times when it's hard to know what to respond, I think about stories and especially old movies. Have you seen old silent movies before? It's been a long time since I've seen one, but these black and white silent films, before they could put audio, it was just a novelty to see moving pictures. And so we've copied it a lot, where you have the picture of people doing things and talking, and then a slide pops up with some words. But the, one, the classic one that I think of is the damsel tied to the train tracks. Are you familiar with this one? Some blonde girl tied to a train track. I don't know why they do this, but here comes the train steaming down the tracks, and in steps a hero who cuts her from the tracks, and of course she kisses, probably lifts her up her, her back heel, and then that's the end of the story, right? I mean, but that's kind of a stereotypical response. How are we supposed to respond in the story of God? As you know, this is our sixth week where we're going straight through the Bible and we're halfway done. That's right. In only 12 weeks, we're covering the whole of Scripture. And today we finish with the Old Testament portion, the the first testament of the story. And it's easy to get caught up in the details of life, the tiny little itty-bitty stories, and we're doing that some. But what we're also trying to do is not just take that worm's eye view but take a bird's eye view. You know, get a, get a much bigger picture of the story as it all flows together. And the psalm that I read to you is one person's response. When you see that God creates us in love, and that God wants to lead us, and that we're unfaithful and God judges us, and does so in a way that shows His remarkable faithfulness to us in the midst of our unfaithfulness, it's kind of hard to know how to respond. And today I'm coming to a group of of books, a section of Scripture that a lot of times we don't know what to do with. But I think it typifies what our response can be. A response where God has first acted in love. And as John says in 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. God's initial love makes the way for us to be able to respond in love. Now, this kind of response actually shows up in some surprising ways, too. The the psalmist that I told you about and read the few verses from, Psalm 116. Something has happened in this person's life, and they go into the temple of God, and they raise up a glass of wine. They're going to give a cheer to God. And they also respond by keeping their vows. So two things there. A respond of worship, of praise of God, and a respond of living, of wisdom in the lifestyle that one carries out, the way that they conduct themselves. I think another surprising place where this shows up is, believe it or not, the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, we think of them as the ten rules that are up there. But if you look closely at how they begin, the Ten Commandments are a story. It's a story where God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And he says, Worship me only. 
It's a story. It's a story of God providing deliverance to a group of people and inviting them into a relationship. A relationship that those ten rules point back to. The covenant promise made to Abraham. So what we've got is really our heart overflowing in worship and our hands being extended in how we conduct our lives. So how are we going to do this today? Covering six books. We can do it. Is everyone sitting up straight, deep breath, ready to go? The way that I want to do it is in two parts. We're going to look at wisdom, and we're also going to look at worship. And I want to start with worship because it's our, our primary response, our first place beginning point. In the ancient Near East, there was a type of literature called wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature was not just confined to the people of God. You could find Egyptian wisdom literature. We find wisdom literature today, right? I think in some ways, uh, uh, memes or truisms, books that contain these, uh, maybe all the things that you might want to put at the bottom of your signature line on your email, if you're one of those folks, something that captures a truth about who you are, well, wisdom literature is kind of one of those groups of literature where you wonder what to do with. And odds are you haven't heard a lot of sermons from these books. But the way that I want it to look at it today is to point to what was unique about Israel's wisdom literature. With the people of Israel, they had a little different phrase that was kind of like a chamber, a jewel buried down a treasure, hidden away in a safe. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It shows up over and over again. The fear of the Lord is the starting point of wisdom. And that's kind of a strange place to begin. In, in Genesis uh, chapter 20, that is one of the places where it kind of describes what people are like. Verse 20, in verse 11 of chapter 20, it says that there was a group of people who did not fear the Lord. Now, when I, when I hear that, it's kind of hard to know what to do with that. Fear of God. There are places where we're told you should fear God. There are other places where God comes to people or messengers of God and they say, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Well, I'm confused. Which is it? Is it fear God or don't fear God? As we roll through just kind of a quick look at all these memes of fear or no fear, Abraham shows the fear of God when he offers his son. In Genesis 31, God's name is actually called the fear. Genesis 31, 42. Now that's a strange name. That doesn't always make it to our list. The fear. But it's what God was called. In chapter 17, we have people falling down on their faces before the fear of God. Or jump to Exodus, Moses in the burning bush. He falls down on his face before the fear, before Yahweh. And so we get all of these verses together and we wonder what's the difference between the times that we're supposed to fear and when we're not supposed to fear. Well, here's the difference. God is not calling you to emotional trauma, to physical fear, to anxiety. The difference is that sometimes how we respond to the presence of God versus the kind of respect that we're supposed to have for God. Let me tell you what I mean by that. God isn't about being an abusive father. Some of us have parents. 
that treated us in such a way. And so it's hard when we hear a passage like this to think about fear of God. Is that the kind of relationship that we want with God? No. It's not meant to be anxiety. It's not meant to be this emotional stress. But first, it is to be worship. The fear means loyalty, respect, honor. It's providing devotion to God. So the first response is that of worship. The second is a response of wisdom, of turning away from what's wrong in our life, walking away from evil and choosing the wise life. Wisdom literature points us to this. It points us into the story, not of hate and anger, but into the way of God. So here's how we're going to do it. Breaking it into these two chunks, we're going to look at three books each, first starting with worship. So let's get rolling. Worship as our response of showing loyalty and respect to God. We get to participate in our natural response of training our heart to seek God. With fear of God being the beginning of wisdom and not hate and revenge, we're not talking about worship as an event where we just show up like this, where we pray and read scripture and play instruments and sing songs and gather around the table. It's not just an event, but worship is something a bit more than that, where we gather up our entire life and offer it to God. The Psalms, where I've started today, is the first book that I want us to look at. The Psalms are a place that creates space for our human emotion and lots and lots of them. I don't know if you've read the Psalms, but they are honest, they are raw, and they are difficult in the way that they approach God. What's interesting to me about the Psalms, among all the literature in Scripture, is we think about these words coming from God, but the Psalms are a hymn book. Songs like we just sang, songs that we offer to God. It's human language offered to the divine. Now, I find that encouraging that the Psalms provide space for our range of emotion from stress, anger, fear, terror, crying out to God in praise or thanksgiving or frustration, to be able to lament or be depressed. The Psalms have it all. And the Psalms allow us to enter into this story, this drama with God, where we bring what's going on in our life to God. And it's, for me, proof that all of life is worship. All right, so there's the first book. The second one might surprise you a bit that there's a whole book dedicated to sex. The Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. Now, the Song of Songs uh, can be confusing in our time because so much uh, sexual confusion is in the world today where we think it's all about me and my desires and what I want. But here, portrayed... uh, a marriage relationship between a man and a woman is compared to our relationship with God. Yes, you heard that right. Our relationship to God compared to an intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. That's kind of stunning. Something that I find encouraging, that in Scripture, there is the rawness of the beauty of love. And it's another proof to me that all of life is holy before God. And I think that that allows us to maybe live out what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, where we're offering our bodies as living sacrifices. And that's not just some part of us, that's all of us. And I think that's a blessing. 
third one. So we've got Psalms, we've got Proverbs, and thinking about worship and our response to God. The third one is Lamentations. Lamentations is one that was written by the prophet Jeremiah. There are five big lamentations, and it is what you would expect. They're laments. They are expressions of sorrow, five of them, written in the time when Judah was captive to the power of Babylon, a foreign power. And it's real. It's a place where there's confession of sin, and it's also a time of confessing that the world is not the way they want it. They're a dominated, subservient group of people to an oppressive group of folks that don't worship God at all. And for me, I find this quite encouraging that I can bring my sorrow, my frustration about the world around me and realize that that too can be gathered up as a part of my life offered to God. That's a blessing. Three books all focused today, at least in the way that I'm doing it, in terms of worship. So let's move to the second group. Three more books that focus in on wisdom, our response. Wisdom in the many different cultures, whether it's Egyptian or Near Eastern, had to do with how you live your life, the practical art of living your life. You could almost think of it as a philosophy, a way of conducting your life. And the three books that I want to look at are, first off, Proverbs. Proverbs is the one of all this stack of books that we're looking at that most fits this coffee table book of truisms. Anybody have books like this? Pictures, lots of little axioms and phrases that you pick up, and people don't usually know what to do with Proverbs. Have you heard many sermons on Proverbs? No, but Proverbs show up at funerals. They're, they're the things that show up on signature lines a lot. But did you know there's a story to Proverbs? Most people don't. There's a story, and it's, it goes like this. Whenever a father has to have that uncomfortable conversation with their child about sex, well, here we are again, you know. I've already two books dealing with sex. Yes, Proverbs is a sex talk that a parent has with their child. The first few verses of Proverbs, verse 1 through 7, deal with setting this wisdom refrain of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the charge. But then from verse 8 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 9, Solomon is sitting down with his son saying, look, there's two kinds of women in this world. One woman is the wisdom woman. I like to call her Sophia. That's the Greek word for, for wisdom. It sounds like a nice name, right? So Sophia. Sophia is the path that you should choose. And then he brings up this other woman, the woman of folly. I, I like to call her Polly because it kind of sounds like folly. And he lays out this story of there's two ways that you can live in this world. And inside of that frame, all of these truisms take their place. Sometimes they contradict one another. They're just two lines, maybe four lines, expressing truth about the world. Do you remember how Proverbs ends? If you've ever been to a funeral for a, a woman, maybe an elderly woman, a lot of times Proverbs 31 shows up. It's the wife of noble character. The example of faith is lifted up as this woman who's in charge of her wife. Don't think domestic, you know, wilting flower. Think someone who conducts business who's in charge of a lot. And she is lifted up as the example of faith. Well, I love 
the father-son sex chat that is the book of Proverbs. But that's just one. A second one takes us into the professor's office. I don't know if you've ever had the intimidation factor of going into some professor's uh, office. Maybe it's wood-lined. Pick something like Harvard, you know, something really fancy. Well, Solomon, King Solomon, was known for being wise. And in Ecclesiastes, it's different from Proverbs. It's bigger. It's more philosophical. Because he asks about the meaning of life. The Proverbs, over here in the little tiny, you know, what do I do? Do I turn this way or that way? How do I eat my food? I mean, really tiny things. Solomon's saying, is there any meaning to life? If you've studied Proverbs, you know most people just start in chapter 1 and they skip to chapter 12. In chapter 1, it says, oh, life is meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. And Solomon explores all that there is to explore in life. And he does that fully. And then you get to the very end. If you want, you can look with me. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, as he gives the end of the matter. The end of the matter. All that has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For that's the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon says, yeah, it's meaningless. And yet, the way that you find meaning is the way that you conduct your life. To live your life before God in respect and honor of God. Which brings us to maybe the one that has the biggest question of all. The book of Job. This is our third and our final book in this section on wisdom. The book of Job sometimes gets missed and overlooked because it unpacks for us the limits of wisdom. The limits of wisdom. Where in Ecclesiastes, life seems to be meaningless unless you're following the Lord. Here in Job, we get kind of a punch in the gut of our typical religious approach to the world. A very black and white, either or mentality of thinking. Even when Moses lays out the law, he lays it out kind of like Solomon does with his son on the sex talk. Choose life or choose death. There are two cho choices in your life. Well, what happens in Job is deeper than that. Because Job, a righteous man, has his whole existence taken away. His family, his kids, all of his prosperity, all of his wealth taken away. And if you just live on the principle of if you do good, you're going to get good, and if you do bad, you're going to get bad, then everything should work out just fine, right? And I have to ask you, is that true? That if you do good, you're going to get good, and you do bad, you're going to get bad? Well, it may be generally true. It may be mostly true. But is it always true? No, it's not. And so when Job's friend, Eliphaz, speaks up in chapter 4, like many of his friends do, and says, Job, we see all this destruction of your life falling apart, and so that must mean that your life is not really all that great. And Job... And eventually God says, uh-uh, that's not the case. Job is very encouraging because Job questions the fact of suffering in our world. A question that doesn't have easy answers. 
and one that can't be tied directly to what you've done in your life. And to me, I find that greatly encouraging because God is not a behavioralist. A behavioral what? God's not a behavioralist. You don't treat God like a vending machine where I go and I want a Dr. Pepper and I put in my dollar and I punch Dr. Pepper and I'm going to be very upset if grape falls down because I've punched that button for Dr. Pepper. I mean, a lot of us would really like karma to be true where if you do good, then you're going to get good. I mean, unless we've done bad and then we really don't want that to be true. Job brings sanity in the conversation by saying, the path of wisdom, Job 28, 28, easy to remember, is the fear of God. Our responses of wisdom and worship still leave me coming back to the, to the damsel on the track. Still leave me asking questions. What I find so encouraging about this ending to the First Testament to look at the wisdom literature in this way is that it avoids very simplistic thinking. That if you do good, you get good. Or if there's suffering in the world, it's somebody else's fault or you should be to blame if you're suffering. Life is not that simplistic. I find it encouraging that God gets into the concrete realities of life to talk about things like sexuality, not run away from it like often happens. And God points us to the real purpose of things. You know, I started by this woman shaking her hand. I mean, that, that's kind of the lost purpose. You're getting the, the device to do what you want it to do, but you're not exercising your body. You're disconnected. There's one last passage that I want us to look at that I think is really important, and it speaks to this disconnection, which is so easy for religious people to do. It's in Isaiah chapter 29, starting in verse 13. See if you can't hear the disconnection. But Yahweh said, Because these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Their worship from me is a human commandment learned by rote. So again, I will do amazing things with this people. Shocking and amazing people. Amazing things. The wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning shall be hidden. Do you see the disconnect? Can you make the picture? Their lips are over here. Their hearts are over there. Their mouths say one thing. Their lives are doing a completely different thing. To just get the Fitbit to do what we want is not entering into the lifestyle that helps us find meaning and purpose and health. These responses of wisdom and worship take us from reducing God's Word to a bunch of rules and point them more in the direction of praise. They keep us from thinking of it just in terms of law and makes it a guide for our, how we live our lives. Lip worship is too empty if it doesn't have heart worship. And this God, this God that we speak about, that we sometimes attribute things to, is a God who created us. A God who wants to lead us through this life who, yes, will judge things whenever we turn away from Him, 
And yet, God's faithfulness is such that even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, God is already welcoming us back. And so, while reaping what we sow is true in general, God transforms that and changes that through our worship and through our wise living. This kind of sets the stage for our need. A need that we can't do this alone. The coming, the embodiment of wisdom. The embodiment of righteousness. The embodiment of the fear of God that is Jesus. The one that comes as in the lineage of David. That dry stump. That one that, how could we ever make a group of people out of such an unfaithful group of people? It sets the stage for us to turn our attention to Jesus, which we will do next week. I hope you'll join us then. But for now, let's again offer our lives to God in prayer. Eternal God, we give you our lives. We raise our glasses and we toast you for what you've done. Help us to not lose sight of the purpose of what we do in worship. To not lose sight of the guidance that you've given us in Scripture and through wise people and wisdom literature. That, that purpose is to draw us into relationship with you. To recognize that, that you're God and we're not. God, would you write us into your story? We know you've already done it. But would you help us to take those steps? Would you help us to raise our hands in worship? Would you help us to be more and more like your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.